on the back of your notes, um, I, I put some resources here for you. The vast majority of what I'll say tonight and tomorrow, 70, 80% of what I'll say, uh, will come from these resources. And so if you decide that you want to, uh, to, to dive deeper, uh, go find these books, uh, read them. Um, the one I would point out to you the most will be What Did You Expect by Paul David Tripp. If you want a transformational book for your marriage, uh, get that book. You're going to hear me share a lot of it uh, tonight and tomorrow, but uh, that one uh, in particular is, uh, is transformational for most marriages in my, my experience. Uh, the other resource I want to point you to is uh, there at the bottom of those books underneath there. It's called the Symbus Assessment. Have you all ever heard of Symbus, Saving Your Marriage Before It Starts, Les and Leslie Parrott? Uh, Symbus uh, stands for Saving Your Marriage Before It Starts. Saving Your Marriage Before It Starts is a book that was written probably 25 years ago. It's been out for a long time. But the Parrots uh, designed an online marriage profile. It's a sort of a sort of a personality profile on steroids. And I've never really liked personality profiles. They're they're very general, and I've never really gotten a lot out of them. But this one is so specific. Uh, it, it's about a 17-page report that comes out, uh, and I, I meant to bring one. I'll bring it in the morning. I'll show you a sample report for that. Uh, you don't have to be in premarital counseling to do it. You can. There's a version of it for you that are already married. I feel so strongly about it that I uh, got trained and certified in administering um, the, the, the survey. Now you go online and you take it and then I get the report. And then uh, for premarital counseling, I go through the, the report with the couple. And I will not marry a couple unless they do the counseling with me, the Symbus counseling with the profile and all of that. Uh, now for you, uh, if you're interested in doing the profile, you don't have to come see me for counseling. Uh, I will just send you, uh, it, it comes back to me, but I'll send it to you. Uh, and you can just walk through it. Now, the, the caution here is uh, have Brother Doug on standby because uh, there's some things that will come out that you may have questions about. Uh, you know, I mean, it's intense. It's, it's some pretty deep, deep stuff. Highly, highly recommend it. So if you're interested in that, uh, it has to go through me. You can't just go online and do it. It has to go through a facilitator. Uh, but it's $35 to do it online, all of that goes to Simbus. None of that comes, I'm not trying to make money off of y'all tonight, I promise. It all goes to Les and Leslie Parrott who wrote, wrote the thing. So if you're interested in that, uh, you can check that out and, and shoot me an email and I will uh, get you set up on that, okay? Let's talk about marriage. Specifically, let's talk about love. Loving your spouse like God does. In a survey, um, what makes a good marriage was asked to about a thousand people and the vast majority of the people responded being in love. Now, the question that we need to pose there is what does being in love mean? Because technically, as you're going to see, we go through tonight, love is not something that you can be in. Second survey, separate from the first 
surveyed college students. College students are always interesting. They give interesting answers to surveys. But they said, is that your phone again, dude? Come on. <laughs> A thousand college students revealed, and they were asked, what is the essential ingredient for marriage? No one answer was in the majority. They asked, what is love? And it got even worse. They didn't know. They couldn't answer what love is. So one survey said being in love is the key ingredient in a healthy marriage. And another survey said we don't even know what love is. They couldn't answer enough of the similar answers to even define what love is. And so what we want to do tonight for just a moment is try to define what is love. I'm pretty sure that it's not the self-saturated love that our society tells us it is. Uh, what we see on television, the things that permeate our culture, I, I'm wholly convinced, and I figure you probably are too, that what most people think is love, and when they think they're in love with another person, they're actually in love with themselves. They they love how the other person makes them feel, and so they think they're in love with that person, but actually they just love themselves. And that's true of all of us to some degree, but our culture is saturated with us. Maybe it's uh, the self-sacrificial love that Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 13. I believe that was one of the trivia questions, and that's a pretty good definition of love. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Technically, that's it, right? That probably is the definition of love. It's all-encompassing love. It's God's love. It's agape love, love that's unconditional. But what does that look like in marriage? Does that definition fit in how we can practically live that out in our marriages? Since we are incapable of loving our spouses, or anybody else the way God loves us. We need to define it in a way that makes practical sense. So I want to read a passage to you from the Scripture, 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. It'll be on the screen if you'd like to read along. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us. And his love has been perfected in us. So skip down to verse 20, uh, excuse me, verse 16. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. Love has been perfected among us uh, in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so we are in this world. There is no fear in love. We're going to talk more about that. Tomorrow, there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because 
Fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, insert their husband, wife, spouse, anybody else, you hate anybody else, then you are a liar. For he who does not love his brother, husband, wife, spouse, plug it in, whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. This passage, and I read all of it for a purpose, this passage tells us where we get the best definition of love. We get the best definition of love from an event. The most important event, of course, in human history, the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ's sacrifice of love is the best definition, is the ultimate definition of what love is and what love does. And we're going to call it tonight, for the purposes of our outline, cruciform love. Cruciform love. Cruci, meaning cross, and form, meaning in the shape of. Love, defined by the cross of Jesus Christ. And what does cruciform love mean? Cruciform love is the willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not require reciprocation or that the person being loved is deserving. This is printed in your notes. I'm going to read it one more time. Cruciform love is a willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not require reciprocation or that the person being loved is deserving. I'm going to love you just because you're you. doesn't matter if you deserve it or not. Chances are most of the time you don't deserve it. doesn't matter if you reciprocate it or not. I'm going to love you because you are you, period. That's cruciform love. Let's break the definition down just a little bit more. Willing, it's the willing self-sacrifice, so it means that the decisions, the words, the actions of love come from a willing heart. It can't be coerced. It can't be manipulated. It can't be forced. It is from a willing heart. Self-sacrifice means that love calls you beyond the borders of your own needs, your, your wants, your feelings. True love, cruciform love, calls you beyond that. It is self-sacrificial. It calls you to invest for the good of another calls you to serve. It calls you. It demands that you wait at times. It demands that you give. It demands that you suffer. It demands that you forgive. And it demands, cruciform love demands that you do all of those things over and over and over and over and over again. Willing, self-sacrifice for the good of another. Love always has the good of another in view. This is the problem with our culture's love. Society's love has my good in view. What I can get out of you, what I can get you, can do, uh, you to do for me, to give me, whatever it is, then I will reciprocate what we believe is love, and it's actually not love at all. But love always has the good of another in view. Love is motivated by the interest and needs of others. It's excited. Listen to this. Love, cruciform love, is excited about alleviating the burden of another, even if it means taking the burden upon yourself. Man, what would our marriages look like if, if we lived that way? I will willingly take this burden off of you. 
Love wants the best for the loved one and it works to deliver it. Willing, self-sacrifice for the good of, the, of another that does not require reciprocation or that the person being loved is, is deserving. If you're only interested in loving people who are deserving, if you're only interested in loving your spouse when he or she deserves it in your mind, then the reality is you're not motivated by love for them, you're motivated by love for yourself. We keep circling back to that, don't we? Cruciform love. And that's kind of going to be the foundation for everything we're going to talk about for the rest of our time together. Robert Sternberg is a Yale University psychologist. He developed what he calls the triangular model of love. It's based on years of research and counseling with married couples. In his model, love, like a triangle, has three sides. Passion, intimacy, and commitment. Three sides of a triangle, passion, intimacy, and commitment. Passion is the biological side of love. It's that spine tingling, right? Moves us toward romance. Passion is hormonal. Passion is sensual. It's sexual. It's characterized by physiological arousal, intense desire for physical affection. This is passion. Now, nothing I just said sounds biblical, but it is. One of the questions, me and Matt didn't talk about those questions, but one of those questions, the answer was Song of Solomon or Song of Songs. Listen to this. Now, no pastor in his right mind would preach this on Sunday morning. No youth pastor in his right mind would preach this on Wednesday night. Here's what, the, here's what the lady says, Song of Songs, Song of Solomon. Oh, that he would kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your caresses are more delightful than wine. The fragrance of your perfume is intoxicating. Your name is perfume poured out. No wonder young women adore you. Take me with you. Let's hurry. Oh, that the king would bring me to his chambers. That's mild. You're preaching that Wednesday night, yeah. Of course, of course, Matt Beerhouse is preaching through <laughs> Song of Solomon. Yeah. Okay, when you preach the next chapter I'm about to read, I've got to be here for it. When you, when you preach chapter 7, i got to, okay, all right. Chapter 7 says this. I hope you're not offended by this. I'm just trying to give a, I'm making a point. How beautiful are your sandaled feet, princess? The curves of your thighs are like jewelry, the handiwork of a master. Your navel is a rounded bowl. <laughs> it never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a mound of wheat surrounded by lilies. I said that to my wife one night. She said, no, no, no. A mound of wheat. She said, what do you mean by that? <laughs> your breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. And then it just escalates. He says, how beautiful you are and how pleasant, my love, with such delights. Your stature is like a palm tree, your breasts like clusters of fruit. And then he says, I will climb the palm tree and take hold of its fruit. <laughs> this is in the Bible, man. Listen, we read through the Bible every year at First Baptist Colbert Heights, and I hand out the guide, right? And when we get to Song of Solomon, I'm like, parents, you got to monitor this, okay? <laughs> like, this is rated R stuff in the scriptures, but why is it there? Because that's how God created us. 
the biological, passionate side of love is a crucial part of your marriage. The problem is, taken to the extreme, it's unhealthy. If passion fosters uh, possession and obsession, then it can be dangerous. And at some level, in, in fact, we, you know, we keep talking about our culture, our society, um, this mentality has been taken to the extreme and it's, it's ultimately self-seeking if it's not linked with intimacy. And this is where the problem with love in our culture typically lands is it's passionate but not intimate. What is intimacy then? In, intimacy is the emotional side of love. So passion without intimacy, love without intimacy is only hormones, right? But you can't desire another person over the long haul without really knowing that person. So intimacy has a soulmate component. We're going to talk tomorrow about being soulmates. But it has that, that best friend component, that soulmate component. I mean, we all want somebody who knows us better than anybody else and still likes us, right? Who still wants to be around us, who has heard every story a thousand times and still wants to be with us, who knows every sound, every grunt, everything, right? My wife says, I can hear you cough all the way across the church. You have a distinct cough and she still loves me. We want somebody to know us like that. Intimacy feels a longing in our hearts. We all have it, whether we admit it or not. Intimacy feels a longing for closeness and acceptance. The problem is, in most marriages, a lot of marriages, that without nurturing, intimacy withers. Intimacy doesn't come naturally. Passion is natural. Passion is biological, right? Intimacy's not. Intimacy takes nurturing. It takes work. How many of you have heard of Neil Clark, Clark Warren? Neil Clark Warren. You've seen him, you've heard his voice. He's the eHarmony guy on TV. Uh, Neil, Clark, Neil Clark Warren uh, is actually a psychologist. Actually, uh, Matt has a Master of Divinity from Princeton. I don't know if you knew that or not. MDiv from Princeton University is pretty impressive. Uh, he says that a lack of intimacy is the number one enemy of marriage. That's why he designed eHarmony the way that he did, right? You get to, you, you answer all these questions and then it's, theoretically links you up with somebody who is very much like you in a lot of ways because it fosters intimacy. Here's what he says. If two people do not know each other deeply, they can never merge or bond. They can never become one flesh. So without intimacy, they'll be isolated and alone, even while living under the same roof. Now, I haven't tracked this. I would probably venture to guess, but all of the couples that come into my office for counseling. Marriages are falling apart. Uh, by, by the way, by the time they come to me, and Brother Doug can echo this, by the time they come to us, man, it's bad because they want to hide it from their pastor. They don't want to come to their pastor and tell them that they're, they're struggling. So by the time they come to me, it's getting pretty rough. But a large percentage of the people that I counsel in one way or the other, we'll say, I feel so alone. We live in the same house. We live under the same roof, but we, we just pass in the hallway. It's like I'm living with a roommate instead of a spouse. It's tragic. And that's what happens when intimacy 
wanes. So what does intimacy look like? We don't have time to dive into this. The fulfillment of love, though, it hinges on, on closeness, on sharing, on communication, honesty, support. It's one heart given in exchange for another. It's that intimate relationship. And marriage, by God's design, provides the most intimate relationship that you can possibly have. It is the most radical expression of intimacy that exists in human relationship. So please, we've, we've, we have to foster that. We're going to talk about how in just a little while. Then the third uh, leg of the triangle is uh, commitment. It's the cognitive side. It's the, the mental side. It's the willing side of love. So commitment looks to a future that cannot be seen. You don't know what the future holds, but commitment says regardless of what the future holds, I'm going to be with you. You're mine, and I'm yours. I commit to you. Again, commitment says, I love you because you're you, not because of what you do or how I feel in the given moment. But that commitment is a, it's unchangeable. It's, it's really more, when I do a wedding, I focus on this in the little mini sermon that I do. Marriage is more than a commitment. It's a covenant. A commitment is easily broken. I, I made a commitment to go to the dentist last week and didn't go, right? A co covenant. You, you make a covenant with somebody. That's an unbreakable bond. So the longevity of love, the health of a marriage depend heavily on commitment. So passion, intimacy, commitment are sort of the hot, warm, and cold ingredients of a, of a, a marriage, if you think about it. Passion is the hot, Intimacy is warm, it's soothing, commitment is, we're going to stick it out. <laughs> if passion and intimacy are struggling today, my commitment to you means we're going to figure this out, right? So that's how this works. The problem is, I don't remember, did I put the triangle up on the, in the notes? Yeah. So the problem with this, and when I made that, I, I, I made sure, because I was afraid some of y'all might measure it, I tried to make sure that all three of those lines were exactly the same length. I don't know if they still are or not. The problem with most of our relationships is that one point or another, one line gets longer or shorter than the others. And the triangle becomes warped and misshapen. Sometimes that's a natural course of a marriage, right? I mean, you think about it. If you've been married for a long time, uh, there are days when you're not feeling especially passionate. Uh, there are days when uh, you don't feel super intimate with your spouse. Maybe you've worked long hours and you haven't had a good conversation for a while, and so maybe things are not exactly like they should be. The lines may change just a tad. The problem comes in when they either elongate or shorten dramatically or if they stay that way for too long. Let me show you what I mean by that. The triangle changes shape based on the varying degrees of each component. So let me give you four different types of love here based on this triangle, okay? Romantic love is a combination of intimacy and passion. It's physical attraction mixed with a deep sense of caring. Commitment takes a back seat. 
Commitment in this type of relationship, a romantic relationship, not as important. This is, uh, you might define as sort of the early stages of a romance, right? You first meet somebody, the, the, the passion runs high, you're attracted to the person, the intimacy is there, you're getting to know each other, you're learning new things every time you talk, and it's just an exciting time for love. But the commitment has not found itself yet. Foolish love is a, co a combination of intimacy and, uh, uh, excuse me, a combination of passion and commitment. Foolish love is a combination of passion and commitment. Intimacy is mostly absent. The problem with the commitment side of foolish love is that it's a commitment made on the basis of the passion and nothing else. I'm getting what I want out of you, uh, and, and, and that's all I care about. And so, yeah, I'm committed to this relationship. I don't want to let it go. But all, I, all I'm concerned about is the physical aspect of the relationship. This is uh, what our culture thrives on. Uh, this, is, this is where culture is right now. It's, it's a physical, um, physical and nothing else. And then there is companionable love. Companionable love is a combination of intimacy and commitment. Passion fades to the background. That's essentially a long-term committed friendship. Physical attraction becomes less important than the security of knowing and being known by your partner. This doesn't sound like a bad thing, and compared to the others, it's not. This is a healthy aspect of marriage, to be companions, to have intimacy, to know one another better than you know anybody else, to be committed till death do we part. But when passion fades to the background, the relationship becomes less and less healthy. Uh, even if we've been married for a long time, even if we're getting older, the passion has to be facilitated. What is consummate love? This is the full combination of all three of these components. This is the goal that every marriage should strive toward. Most I would say most marriages achieve this if only for a short time. But maintaining this kind of love is where marriages falter. Consummate love. Maintaining things are difficult. Um, Y'all, I don't, I don't know how many of you have seen me before. Um, I have lost and gained about 600 pounds in the past 20 years. <laughs> My weight has fluctuated so much. And finally, last summer, my wife, who's a nurse practitioner, we started looking at all the COVID stuff, right? Who's at risk for COVID? And my wife looked at me and said, Seth, you check every box, man. You're, you know, you, you meet every requirement for being in ICU on a vent. <laughs> so I, I tried to do something about it and I lost some weight. Losing weight for me is, is, is easy. It drives my wife crazy. She's like, you lose 20 pounds a month. Dude, how do you, losing it is easy. It's keeping it off. That's the problem. How do you keep off weight that you've lost? By doing the same things you did to lose it. So it drives my family crazy. We go to family get together and they're like, you've already lost all the weight. Why don't you have a piece of cake? Well, because if I have that piece of cake, I'm going to have five more. And then you're going to look at me in a month and go, hey, you gained 20 pounds. 
Same thing happens with consummate love. How do you maintain the triangle? How do you keep things the way that they should be in your marriage? You do the same things that you did when you first fell in love. I know that's hard. I know it's difficult. It takes time. It takes effort. But that's the way it works. Let me explain. Love is a verb. We're not in love. We don't have love. We don't possess love. We do love. We act out love. Love is a verb. Now, this is a difference in reactive people and proactive people. And we're not going to dive into this very deeply. Um, if you want to dive into this, by the way, I don't think I put this book on your list, but uh, Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, transformational book, uh, talks about reactive versus proactive. You can add that to your list if you want to dive into this. So reactive people tend to make love a feeling, okay? I feel love for you, and, 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 and that's good. That's a positive thing, and so that's the way that we define love. But proactive people make love a verb. And if you read the romantic literature, all the great romance novels of our time, love is a verb. So, I don't know where you are in your marriage uh, tonight. You may be here because you're struggling. You may be here because you don't want to start struggling. You may be here because you got talked into it. Whatever the, whatever the reason is that you're here, understand that love, the feeling, is a fruit of love, the verb. So if you don't have the feeling anymore, then do love the verb. I have people come in my office all the time for marriage counseling. I just don't love her anymore. I'm not in love. And it's, they, they try to qualify that by saying, now, now don't misunderstand me, I love her. I'm just not in love with her. Well, for, that's nonsense. What you just said is nonsense. So if the feeling is not there, then love her. Truthfully, if the feeling's not there and you want it to be there, that's a great reason to love. Serve, serve her. Sacrifice. Listen, empathize. Appreciate, affirm, pursue. Love pursues. Now listen to this. This is key, okay? This, this is kind of the turning point of everything we're going to talk about tonight. Love pursues. It's a verb. It's action. Courtney and I met, uh, my wife met at uh, ECM Hospital. The place we met is no longer there. Right before they tore it down, we went up to third floor because I met her at the third floor nurse's desk at ECM Hospital, all right? Step-down unit. She worked in CTRU. I worked in cardiac step-down. So when the open-heart surgery patients came out of surgery, they went straight to her in that unit, and then she kept them 24 hours, and she brought them up to me. She literally had to deliver the patient to me, okay? First time she brought a patient to me, I was stricken, all right? A coworker was sitting there. Courtney signs off. She's all business, smartest person I've ever met in my entire life. She spouted off all this stuff that I didn't half understand, 
And then she walked away. And the first thing I said was to my coworker, who was that? Well, that was Courtney. She's new. Okay, well, me and Courtney need to get to know each other, all right? So the coworker goes to Courtney because it's like, you know, hospitals are like high schools. <laughs> so a coworker goes to Courtney and says, hey, Seth kind of like to get to know you. Courtney says, I have a boyfriend. Sorry, coworker comes back, says, tough luck. How about a respiratory therapist over here on the, no, no, no. So a couple of weeks later, no kidding, two or three weeks later, coworker comes, comes uh, actually I go, I'm walking through, down the hallway, the coworker's sitting there, and she said, hey, Seth, Courtney just called. And we were just chatting. And she just happened to bring up that her and her boyfriend broke up. I said, really? She said, yeah, you know what she's doing tonight? This is her off night. You know what she's doing? I said, what? She said, she's making a quilt. She's quilting. I said, that's the girl for me right there. <laughs> so the coworker goes back to Courtney a few days later and says, hey, are you interested in, in Seth at all? And Courtney says, yep, I, he can have my number, but I'm not giving it to you to give to him. He has to come down here and ask me for it. I think that was her way of getting rid of me because she didn't think I would but I did I walked down there between shifts one day I walked down there and like pulled her away from the nurse's desk and said I was told you would give me your number if I came down here here, here, here are, are you going to live up to your end of this bargain here and she said yeah here's my number called her we went out six weeks later I wish I had some kind of romantic I got down on one knee and asked her to six weeks later we decided to get married. Uh, I did, th there was no proposal. We booked our honeymoon before we had a ring and a dress, right? So everything was ordered, and we already had our honeymoon booked. I was a youth pastor at the time, and so when my youth parents found out that I was engaged after just a few weeks, they were like, what are you doing, man? You're killing us. What are we supposed to tell our students now that their youth pastor is engaged after... I said, tell them, I'm 23, I have a job and a house, right? When they get that, they can get married. How did I end up with my wife? I pursued her. It was not a creepy, I hope that didn't come across as creepy. <laughs> now that I've said it, y'all may be going, this is not the guy to be preaching marriage conference. If you want your marriage, now look, all of y'all pursued each other in one way or the other. Your story's different from mine, but you pursued the other person. Love pursues. How do we know that love pursues? Because God pursues us. If cruciform love is how we are supposed to love, cruciform love, by definition, is God pursuing us. Love always pursues. And the beauty of it is, he never stops pursuing. He, he constantly pursues us. He keeps loving us. He keeps showing us how much, how much he loves us. He draws us closer to himself. He pursues us with a passion and a commitment to draw us into deeper intimacy with him. Did you catch what I just said? Those three words, passion, commitment, and intimacy, God pursues you with a passion and a commitment to draw you into deeper intimacy with himself. 
Man, if we could treat our spouses like that, there would be no need for marriage conferences. We would just have it figured out. Love pursues. There are different versions of this story that float around the internet occasionally. I'm going to share with you a happy version of this story. A man who was married to his wife for about 10 years decided that he wanted to change. He didn't love her anymore. He was ready to be done with his wife. And so he started an affair with a woman at work. And after some time, he and his mistress decided they wanted to be together permanently and that it was time for the man to leave his wife. So he went home and told his wife that he was in love with another woman and he wanted a divorce. They had a small son, about four or five years old. The wife, devastated, of course, Agreed to make the transition as smooth as possible, not to cause any problems under one condition. For one month, she asked her husband to carry her at bedtime from the living room to the bedroom, pick her up in his arms and carry her. If you've heard the story, this is a happy version. Don't, don't, don't be upset. First night was tough. He didn't want to hold his wife. Hadn't touched in months. But he scooped her up. He kept his end of the bargain. He carried her from the living room to the bedroom and laid her in the bed. Their little son looked at him like they were nuts, but he did it. The nights after that, it got a little bit easier. There became even the slightest hint of the spark that had been missing. They thought it had left their marriage for good, but his act of loving her, pursuing her, spark began to come back. Their son was delighted with this. Every night at bedtime, he would say, Daddy, you going to carry Mommy to the bed? And he would. By the time the month was over, this man was having feelings for his wife that he thought were long gone, and because love, the feeling is fruit of love, the verb, he decided that he loved her after all. I went and broke off the relationship with the mistress and went home to his wife. So I want to challenge you tonight. If, look, I may only be talking to one person here tonight, maybe nobody, but if you're struggling to feel love, then do love, and the feeling will, will follow. In the Simbus assessment, in the Simbus book, uh, Dr. Parrott says this, every successful marriage is the result of two people working diligently and skillfully to cultivate their love. When they combine passion, intimacy, and commitment, they're able to grow a flourishing and healthy marriage. So let's close with this. How do we cultivate these three things, okay? How do we cultivate passion, first of all? So, I know what you're thinking. We talk about this at marriage conferences and we talk about Song of Solomon, things like this. And listen, it's unrealistic to expect a honeymoon to last for 70 years, okay? If you are lucky enough to be married for 70 years. But marriage does not require for passion to, to go away. In fact, there's a study, a really interesting study, of high school seniors and a group of couples who had been married for more than 20 years that both groups, the high school seniors and the couples married for longer than 20 years had a more, a more romantic 
passionate view of love than couples who had been married for less than five years. So it's almost like there's a rebound passion at 20 years or so or wherever that lands for you. It's almost like the high school students hadn't given up on romantic love yet and the folks that, that had been married for a while were enjoying a boomerang passion, if you will. So it's possible. How do we do it, though? Three things. Look, there's so many more that I could give you that you can read in these books that I gave you, but let me give you three. Uh, first, practice meaningful touch. Look, this is simple, and it, and it doesn't always need to be done with the expectation of sex. In fact, if you want to cultivate passion, practice meaningful touch. Don't let touch become something that is foreign to your marriage. That sounds so odd for me to say that to Christian couples and folks that have been married for a while, but don't let just everyday touch become foreign to your marriage. Don't let your marriage become two people sharing a house together just as roommates. Meaningful touch, not always with the expectation of sex. In fact, maybe rarely, if you do it every day, maybe rarely with the expectation of sex, but practice meaningful touch. Second, plan mutually enjoyable experiences. Uh, being married doesn't mean the fun has to end. Romantic dinners, trips to the theater, uh, date nights, quick trips, long vacation, uh, whatever. Passion wanes. Um, passion wanes when a spouse is only associated with the uh, shoes in the floor. <laughs> uh, the pile of dirty laundry. I was thinking when Matt had y'all... Uh, take your shoes to the back and have your spouse uh, find them. I was thinking, this is not going to be hard. She picks them up every night probably, right? This, I mean, when that's what you associate with a spouse, then yeah, passion's going to wane. So have other things in place. Uh, Matt, did you have Dr. Gregoire for pastoral counseling? He's the meanest professor we had, and somehow he was a counselor. I don't know how he managed to do it. Uh, he... My seminary professor in, in one of my pastoral counseling classes, he said, if he's going to do pastoral counseling, marriage counseling for a couple, he requires them to have one date night a month and one overnight trip per quarter, four times a year, overnight trip. And he required them to bring receipts and prove that they did it, or he would cut them loose from his counseling service. Right? Now, I don't do that, but I do strongly suggest it. I know we've got baseball games and band practice and, and I, I, y'all could go on and on and on and on with the things that you have to do. I get that. But that's what makes this so dangerous is if you get yourself wrapped up in all the things of life and you forget to pursue your spouse, you're going to wake up in 10, 15, 20 years and you're not going to know each other. That empty nest syndrome, that doesn't just account for the kids being gone. It accounts for a marriage falling apart because you don't know each other anymore. Your life becomes so wrapped up with the kids that when the kids leave home, there's no reason for you to stay married anymore. That happens all the time. So date your spouse. Pursue your spouse. Be creative. You don't have to spend a ton of money to do this either. Uh, third, maybe the easiest thing is compliment your partner daily. It sounds so simple, but there's a lot of research that has gone on and gone into this. 
the most important element of romantic passion is for both husbands and wives to feel special, to feel good about themselves. They they not only want to feel attractive to their mates, but they want to feel appreciated by their spouse. Compliment your partner daily. I don't know if this statistic is accurate or not. It may be, um, but I read that a jet uses 80% of its fuel at takeoff. Anybody know if that's true or not? Any of you experts on aerospace, whatever? 80%. That's how a marriage works, right? That honeymoon and 80% of your fuel is gone. Then you get back home and there's dirty dishes and laundry and all this stuff. But a healthy marriage requires fuel for a, a more steady it may not be honeymoon passion all the time, but it requires a more steady fuel to maintain altitude. How do we cultivate intimacy? I got to hurry. We're going to run out of time. Cultivating intimacy. Spend time together. Seth, you just said that with passion, date night. This is different. I'm not talking about date nights, and I'm not talking about uh, overnight trips. I'm talking about every night, turn off the TV and put down your phone, put down your phone, put down your phone, put down your phone. Did you know in my ministry, I've been in ministry 23 years, a pastor for 13. Years ago, the number one issue that people came into my office with with marriage problems was money. That was number one. Number two was sex. And number three and four and five was something completely different. Do you know what it is now? Somebody take a guess. Social media. Social media. I cannot tell you how many marriages are, have fallen apart just in my circle because of social media. Put your phone down. I, I didn't plan to say this. It's not on the notes. I want to say this, though. Just, this is free. Your spouse needs every password that you own. There is no reason for your phone to be locked so that your spouse can't get your phone. There's no reason for you to have a Facebook account that your uh, uh, spouse can't look at. Now, I'm not telling you to get a, a joint account on Facebook or whatever, but I'm telling you, if you have secrets in your marriage, especially when it comes to social media, you are asking for trouble because the people out there who are going to pursue you, they don't care. They don't care about your marriage. They don't care that they're sending guys, that they're sending your wife Facebook Messenger stuff, ladies that they're sending your husband. There are crazy people out there, and they will wreck your marriage just for the fun of it. So guard yourself. I have on my phone, I've been a Christian since I was six years old. I've been married for 17 years. I've been in ministry for 23 years, and I have a, an app on my phone called Covenant Eyes, like I'm a 14 year old boy. It's on my phone. Because my wife needs to know that she can trust me that I'm not on my phone doing stuff I don't need to be doing. Covenant eyes. You can write that down on your notes too. It's good stuff. All right. I didn't mean to get into all that. Put your phone down. Heart-to-heart -heart conversations don't happen when you're looking at your phone. It don't, they don't happen when you're on the go passing in the hallway, okay? Next, listen with a third ear. Studies on intimacy indicate that not really listening is the most fundamental error that couples make when it comes to intimacy. Now, 
I'm going to confess something to you. If my wife was here, she would be jumping up and down at y'all about this because I am the worst listener in the history of the world. My wife can have an entire conversation with me, and not only did I not hear what she said, I didn't even know she was talking. And so I've told her, like, for years now, I've said, Courtney, you can't talk to me unless you say my name first. You have to get my attention. I'm like a child, guys. Are, are, are we all like that, or is it just ladies? Is your guy like that? Okay, good. I don't feel so bad. I'm going to tell my wife that all of y'all said your husband's like that too. I have a one-track mind, and if I'm focused on something, I'm not listening to her. And so this kind of goes back to put your phone down, turn the TV off. But listen with a third ear means don't just hear what she says or he says, but understand the feelings that are behind it. Now, that sounds all psychiatry, right? But it's true. Don't just listen to the words. Understand the, the feelings that are behind it. That's what it means to listen with a third ear. Next, practice unconditional acceptance. The deepest kind of sharing and intimacy can only happen when there's no fear of rejection. Your spouse should not have to walk on eggshells around you. Your spouse should not have to worry that he said something wrong and you're going to not speak to him for three days. Your spouse should not have to worry that, 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 you, that you don't accept her that day for whatever reason. Unconditional acceptance. Next, focus on commonalities. Intimacy grows when nurtured by shared emotions, shared experiences, uh, shared beliefs. And finally, explore spiritual terrain together. We're going to talk about this tomorrow. This is our whole session tomorrow, becoming soulmates. Do you worship together, pray together, talk about your prayer lives? Do you discuss those things? Finally, cultivate commitment. First, assess the high value of commitment. Three psychiatrists, I keep talking about these studies, but three psychiatrists studied 6,000 marriages and 3,000 divorces. 6,000 marriages and 3,000 divorces and concluded this. There may be nothing more important in a marriage than a determination that it shall persist. <laughs> We're going to stay married. My wife told me years ago, she sent it to me in a text. And she got it off, I think she got off social media. It was a little meme, but it basically said, if you're upset in this marriage, go in the other room and cool off, and then we're going to figure this out, right? This is not an option. Divorce is not an option. Assess the high value of commitment. Meet your partner's needs. One of the best ways to give people security is to meet as many of their day-to-day -day needs as possible. Figure out a way to serve your spouse, meet their needs, Next, honor your spouse's promise. Your spouse's commitment to you is a gift, by the way. If you, I hope you see it that way. Honor that gift with a commitment of your own. And finally, make your commitment a part of your being. It's a part of who you are. There's a play called A Man for All Seasons. The main character in the play explains to his daughter why he cannot break an oath. And here's what he says. I'm going to close with this. When a man makes a promise, he puts himself into his own hands like water. If he opens his fingers to let it out, he need not hope to find himself again. If your commitment to your spouse is, is yourself being poured out, if you let that commitment go, you'll lose a part of yourself. All right. Uh, we're going we're gonna to take a break. I went longer than I said. I'm sorry. Um, but 
there's a couple of pages in your notes that you're going to focus on in your discussion time. It's called A Deeper Look at Cruciform Love. And you don't have to read all of that now. But I want to just read one of them to you as we, as we close. The very, you know what? Let me read two of them to you, okay? I know, I know we got to stop. But these are going to be a part of your discussion, okay? So a deeper look at cruciform love. Everybody find it in your notes. All of these come from um, What Did You Expect by Paul David Tripp. These are not original to me. But look, what, look at the first one, very first one. Love is being willing to have your life complicated by the needs and struggles of your husband or wife without impatience or anger. Love, cruciform love, being willing to have your life complicated. And here's the reason I point that out. There's so many of these, but the reason I point it out is because when life gets complicated is when we tend to give up. We're going to talk about it in discussion. Look at the last one. Last one. Love is never general and it never remains in the realm of feelings. Love desires, thinks, chooses, decides, it acts, it speaks in an ongoing day-by-day commitment to the welfare of another. That's the challenge as we close. Is your relationship with your spouse taking on that kind of cruciform love where you pour yourself out for the good of your spouse, whether she or he reciprocates that or not is not the question. It's about you. Tomorrow we're going to have a a challenge of what if what if I'm the problem in my marriage? We tend to blame the other person. What if I'm the problem? Cruciform love will fix that for you, okay? 